Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. Boom. Just like that. Welcome everyone to this episode of the real leaders podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the best-selling author and most of her most recent book, the long game, how to be a long-term thinker in a short-term world. Please welcome Dory Clark. Dory, thanks for being with us today. Kevin, thank you. So glad to be here. It's always a pleasure having an author on like yourself. Now, you've been writing books for quite some time. Take us back. What got you into uh, writing books and, and your interest in uh, the long game? You know, I I had always wanted to write a book. This was a goal of mine really from the time I was a little kid. So it was uh, it was something I had always thought was would be cool. Um, but unfortunately, it was a little bit of a struggle to uh, to do it. I uh, I think, you know, now most most people rationally would realize like, oh, yeah, it's not the easiest thing to uh, to write a book. But for me, in 2009, I decided, OK, this is going to be the year. And I wrote three different book proposals. Nobody wanted any of them. And I really had to kind of take a step back. Uh, they said, you know, ah, you're not famous enough. So I had to work on platform building over a period of about two years. And eventually I was able to uh, land a book contract, which led to my first book getting published, Reinventing You. And so since then I've been plugging away and have done four books, but uh, it was a bit of a journey. The, the author's journey is uh, very stressful. Uh, I've been speaking with a few authors. We obviously have plenty on the show. Um, like, what works for you? Do you have a specific formula that you like to use, whether it's uh, reaching out to others to use their network? Uh, is it PR? Um, is it just consistently a numbers game for you? What type of formula do you like to use to get the message out about your book? Well, when it comes to publicizing your book, uh, certainly it's it's an ongoing challenge. I think something that I have definitely done a lot of, uh, of in the past, uh, current case uh, in point, is podcasts. Uh, during the, the promotion of my last two books, Stand Out and Entrepreneurial You, 
for each of them, I did about 160 podcast interviews. And for the long game, we're coming up on a, about 160. My plan, though, is I actually realized retrospectively that I think that I did not promote them long enough. Uh, after a while, you kind of you know keep leaning in. You get a little sick of hearing yourself talk, and you're like, okay, I'm done. I'm out. You know, hopefully the book will take care of itself. But there is honestly so much noise in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. You really can't assume that that's going to be the case. And so my commitment for the long game, kind of meta here, is that I am going to work to promote it for the next five years. So I am planning to do a minimum of 500 podcasts over the next five years, uh, su supporting the book and spreading the word in that way. Love it. Love it. And now tell us a little bit about your definition of long. Like what designates long versus short in your opinion? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think in many ways, this is a little bit more art than science, mm. but long, long-term thinking, playing the long game, I would say maybe on the short end of the long game, it could be a year, but oftentimes I'm thinking about a five-year goal, a 10-year goal, even a 20-year goal. You know, what are the things that you are aspiring toward that maybe it's a little, it's a little foggy right now. You know, it's hard to see how you might get to it, but you know, it's important. You know, it's a worthy goal that is worth aspiring toward. Those are the things that I'm especially interested in. And so if, if long-term is five, 10, 20, um, what do you mean by a short-term world? Like for instance, like we'll, when we think of short-term, we think of decisions that are going to harm the future. Uh, decisions that if you were to, to die today, the company wouldn't survive. What do you mean specifically by, by short-term? Yeah, well, in the formulation, you know, that we're, you know, that we're striving to be long-term thinkers in a short-term world, I think that a piece of it is just that so much of the societal pressure these days is pushing us in the direction of the short-term. So it could be certainly for corporations, uh, you know, for publicly traded companies, it's about quarterly earnings. And for us as individuals, oftentimes social media is not the most helpful force because we are comparing ourselves to people around the world, we're seeing these images where we're not getting the full story about what people's lives are like or about what it actually took them to get where they are. And we often are looking for uh, a much more instant or near instant form of gratification than often is practicable. Dory, what, what was it like for you when you were starting out? Like, uh, what were you trying to achieve, I guess? Because the, the reason I want to know is because I really want people to understand what they're getting themselves into uh, if they're going to you know, start this entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, this is such an important question. And I agree with your thinking behind it, Kevin, in the sense that I feel like oftentimes where we end up making mistakes is that we don't take the time up front to actually scope out what something is likely to cost in terms of time or energy or investment. Right. And then it's very easy to get really discouraged um, as, as part of it, because you might be assuming it takes X amount of time, but if it you know goes, you've been doing it X plus six months or whatever, and it's not popping, you say, oh, well, you know the process is broken. I'm defective, whatever. It's not working for me. But meanwhile, that might've been an erroneous assumption. So it's important to lay that out up front so we know what actually we're aiming toward. In my case, I became interested in a lot of these topics because I struggled when I first launched my business now back in, 20, uh, in, in 2006. Mm -hmm. So it's been 15 years. Right. I 
just vividly remember how challenging it was for me to understand, you know, all the basics, right? How do you identify your ideal customer? How do you get positioning in the marketplace? And especially how do you distinguish yourself? It's so hard to get heard. And I've worked hard on that process of becoming recognized for my expertise, but it, it was a slog and it did take time. It took more time than I wanted it to. And so I really wrote the long game in many ways for people like myself, you know, a number of years ago when I was starting my business, because I don't want good people to get discouraged and quit. I would like them to be able to proceed and move forward. I'm actually curious, Kevin, when you think about long-term thinking and long-term goal setting, what, what role does that have in your life and how do you envision what you want your long-term goals to be? Yeah, definitely. That's a good question. Uh, I think for me, I started doing the podcast uh, just to learn, really. It was kind of just a natural fit, just to learn. I wasn't really trying to achieve anything. And then as I continue to interview more business uh, leaders, you kind of hear like, you know, I think uh, the definition of a really to me is someone who can leave the place better than they found it. And so if I were to you know, leave the company today, would it be able to survive? And that's a good example of leadership. So it has to transcend beyond just the Reelers podcast, if you will. So I think long term, you know, that would be a, a legacy that we would want to leave here. That's how I kind of perceive it. I love it. Yeah, it's a great answer. The, the, the tough part with that, though, is, um, you know, jumping in and, and really doing something you've never done before. Like I know you had a background in the newspaper and in publishing and then, you know, going into entrepreneurship, some people feel sometimes that they can't do that, that they had known nothing about customers, that they don't know anything about business. But having that long-term perspective is very important. You're not going to be able to get up on the surfboard on the first time. What advice do you have for people listening to this that are stuck in their careers, obviously people, many people are unmotivated right now. What advice do you have for those people? Yeah. So this is often a, a really common challenge. And, you know, I remember, well, I was working at a nonprofit. I was a nonprofit executive director and I was thinking about starting my own business and it really did feel overwhelming. There were so many things I didn't know. And so I actually spent about a year after after announcing that I was planning to leave, I wanted to, you know, it was this tiny organization, so I wanted to give them, you know, a million years notice to be able to find right. a new executive director. Um, but I spent that year just really spending my nights and weekends learning. I would go to the library and, you know, just take out a stack of books. And I was reading a couple of books a week about business, about marketing, about sales, things I didn't know about. So I was on this self-education quest but I was also uh, taking courses at, you know, cheap courses. I didn't have a lot of money to spare, but I was, you know, teaching, uh, taking things at uh, the local adult ed center and, and things like that about, you know, how do you create good PowerPoint slides? How do you create a business plan? How do you use QuickBooks? You know, all these things that I thought, okay, this is going to be useful for me and I don't know anything about it. So I think where we often go wrong is a lot of the cultural conversation about becoming an entrepreneur is about this sudden and abrupt change, you know, taking, taking a leap and, you know, making this like huge shift. I actually think that we'd all be better off if we thought of it as a gentler process, mm. because 
I mean, it is it is frightening and potentially destabilizing to give up all of your income in one go and then figure out, okay, I, I wonder how I'm going to, you know, pay the rent next month. It's a terrible place to be. I would much rather have someone take time over a period of time to build up uh, and test a side business before you leave your job. Hmm. So are your recommendations mainly for passive income? So I have a lot of thoughts about this. I started my business as a consultant. So, you know, that in many ways, that's the ultimate kind of time for dollars. Right. Uh, you are selling expertise. And if you are able to be upmarket enough, you can make great money from doing that. Um, however, it is also useful, I think, to diversify your revenue streams. And in fact, that's something in my previous book, Entrepreneurial You, it's, it's a book about basically creating multiple revenue streams in your business. I really tried to hammer that home uh, because I had an experience back in 2015. I had traveled so much that year. I had given 74 talks that year and I was home over Christmas break, just sick. I had a terrible cold and I was thinking like, why am I doing this to myself? This is awful. And I realized if I ever got like really sick, you know, I mean, I had a cold, I'd get better, but if I ever got really sick or something, I would not be able to earn money that way anymore. And I realized that was a potential business vulnerability for me. So I began to really in earnest look into and emphasize passive income, uh, things like online courses and communities and things like that. And so that is now a substantial piece of the work that I do in my own revenue mix. And so, you know, I, I think we can't necessarily always or, or from the beginning do passive income. Sometimes we can, but, um, but I, I want to suggest that it is a very useful uh, leg to have on your table because when you have that, it gives you a lot more security and a lot more possibilities in case you ever are in a situation where you can't be delivering services one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. It makes sense. And where, where's your starting point? Because obviously you're going to reach a lot of um, turmoil like that if you were to get sick. I know in COVID, you know, we had a lot of guest, you know, guest keynote speakers come on the show because obviously conferences are, are a way do you start with the purpose though? I mean, do you start with the main intention? Like I know you asked me that question. I think I'd answer it differently. I'd say, you know, my, my intention is to have the most meaningful conversations that transform lives. So I'm going to do that, whether it's in work, professional, personal relationships, that's, I just believe that's who I am. I'm going to continue to do that. So maybe I could start some type of side hustle or, or integrate it into the work. Where do you start though? Um, and what, what do you recommend for people that are trying to uh, identify what they want to do? Yeah, well, I think oftentimes the best starting point is with your existing audience. And if you have an email list, that is great because you can survey them. If you don't, you can uh, look at where your audience is. It might, it might just be your connections on social media sites or, or things like that. Um, but ultimately, we are often wrong in terms of what we think clients would like. You know, when I think about the early days, we started this conversation by talking about my early efforts to get a book deal. And I wrote three different book proposals. And honestly, you know, n none of them sold, um, largely because I didn't have a good platform, but also because they were okay ideas, but they weren't really great ideas. I was doing the best I could, but they weren't brilliant. And where you can actually find things that really resonate with your audience 
they, they there is so much more collective wisdom than we alone possess. So probably the best thing we can do is to find out, survey our audiences, ask them what they're interested in, understand from talking to them, from you know qualitative interviews or, or what have you, what is it that you know? What are the problems that are facing them? What what is it that they consider a big problem? And do they believe that you can assist them in that way? Because once you figure that out, that is doing a huge amount of heavy lifting for you. Um, you are able to create something that then is going to be put into a receptive market rather than the constantly uphill battle of, oh, I thought this was a good idea. You don't think it's a good idea? Well, no, Kevin, it's a really good idea. Pay attention to me now, uh, which never goes over very well. All right. It makes sense. And that's, I guess that would make sense why you're also, you have diverse revenue streams coming in. How many employees do you have, if you don't mind me asking, or like a, a range? Are you under 15 or? Oh, I'm one. I'm, I'm my one. only employee. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's very impressive. Yeah, when I when I started my business, I uh, very firmly decided I didn't want to manage a staff. I didn't sure. want to sort of build an entity. So I have a uh, well, actually now I have two part time uh, virtual assistants. But I uh, decided from from the beginning that I really wanted to just be the sole employee. That's very impressive. And so if if you have a revenue stream and it continues to make more money, let's say it's recurring revenue that's coming in versus a one off course. How do you proceed that? Do you pivot and, and focus most of your time on that one, let's say that main driver and, and do less on like a chipper or a putter? How do you perceive and make your decisions for how you prioritize your day? Yeah. Well, in terms of like specifically for me, I guess we can answer it both ways, like the specific you and then the general yeah, you. Yeah, please. Uh, so for me specifically, I know that there are phases, right? There's a a concept that I talk about in the long game called thinking in waves. Hmm. And part of this for me is understanding that there's there's seasons to everything in your business and you have to really know where you are. Like what season are you in? And so for instance, for the latter half of 2021, pretty much you know, I mean we we always have client work that we're keeping going because we have to keep it going. But in terms of our discretionary time and effort, pretty much the only thing I could have on my plate was marketing and launching the long game. That was that was basically it. Mm. And so I massively over-indexed on promotion and uh, you know, just sort of like kind of heads up media type things. That was good. That was necessary for what it was because if you have a book you have to launch it well. Otherwise, you might as well not have done the book, uh, you know, and not bothered. But, you know, as we think about moving into 2022, I am not going to be promoting the book as heavily. I'm going to continue promoting it on kind of a slow burn, as we talked about, because I don't want the marketing to go away. I want to keep it successful. But I'm going to be turning my attention to other matters um, because the new wave is coming. And it's a wave to focus on revenue because when you're focusing on publicity, sometimes it leads to revenue, but not necessarily like they're kind of separate things. Like you're doing a million podcasts, nobody's paying you for them. But the reason you do it is because it tees you up to a higher level of prominence that enables you to monetize downstream. So 2022 is going to be back being a year more focused on monetization and courses and things like that. And I think the universal applicability, the kind of generic you is Similarly, understanding what wave we're in and figuring out, all right, based on that, 
where am I going to focus my energies over the next three to six months? Mm. It, it makes a lot of sense. Very wise. And, and, and t- speaking about prominent story, how do you react when you see someone on the street or an old friend, a family member who comes up to you and Hey, you know, I saw you on that interview or, Hey, you know, I saw you on Forbes the other day. That's, that's crazy. Are you ever taken back by that? What is your response to people uh, when they put you on a pedestal that would be higher than, let's say, another friend of theirs? Ah, well, it's a very multifaceted question you're uh, you're asking, Kevin. I think that one part of it is that, of course, it's it's a little uncomfortable if some if you feel that somebody is putting you on a pedestal, right? Um, if you are an egalitarian at heart, which I try to be, you realize, you know, that's that's a little weird mm-hmm. because in elevating you, they're essentially kind of to a certain extent diminishing themselves. And so I am really a believer in encouraging other people and having everyone understand we have something to learn from everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a concept in psychology called asynchronous development, mm-hmm. and it sort of talks about these, you know, developmental stages, but I feel like there's that's true as well in entrepreneurial stages or business stages right that somebody might be you know sure they might be better than you at a thing maybe they're better than you at getting published in you know certain publications that doesn't mean they're better than you it means that they have focused on a certain area meanwhile you might have focused in some area that they don't know a lot about and so we all have things to teach each other so i think that Oftentimes there's there's a lot of people that are not getting sufficient encouragement and it's easy to sort of feel bad about yourself, you know, when you when you look around and it's like, oh, why does everybody else have it figured out? Why don't I have it figured out? And I really want to be the voice encouraging people that, you know, all the stuff that I do, all the stuff that anybody does, you can do it too. It's not it's not so hard, it's not rocket science. I go bonkers when I hear arguments about like, well, some, just some people can do blah, blah, blah. Some people are born that way, blah, blah, blah. I mean, assuming that you do not have some, you know, totally incapacitating illness that's like preventing you from doing something. No, you can do all the things. This is, this is not about some people are different. Some people are better or whatever. Any of us can do it. It's, it's a question of focus. It's a question of emphasis. And if you were focused on it, um, you, you could do it too. And I would encourage uh, the general you to do that. Um, so that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is uh, it feels great to be recognized. And so, uh, so long as you don't get the feeling that the other person is kind of feeling bad about themselves uh, because of it, but instead, you know, it's just like, yay, you know, cheering on other people's successes, then I think that's fantastic. And yes, it's always nice to, uh, to have people notice. Well, the reason I ask is because, you know, one, just with marketing, Dory, it's like, you know, you've got this great personality, you know, you're very charismatic, you're funny, uh, you have very nice voice and fluctuations, you know, that, that have a nice delivery when you speak. And, you know, if you were to meet someone, they come up to you and they put you on that pedestal, you know, I've interviewed too many entrepreneurs to know that sometimes it's very lonely at the top. And a lot of people don't understand the grind that you put yourself through. I mean, all of these books, all this email marketing, all that writing, that takes a lot of time. And I know that and it's some some serious respect for you. Um, But, you know, what about what about the, the tough times, Dory? What about the tough times that you've gone through? 
what have you like fallen back on when you get to that point of, of no return almost like, how do you continue to motivate yourself to put on that smile, to put on the face and put on the charismatic, uh, charismatic attitude uh, for every single interview? Yeah. Well, thank you, Kevin. Yeah. I mean, certainly there are, there are plenty of tough times. I mean, most recently, most saliently, of course, uh, was COVID and everybody experienced it in different ways. The way that I think about COVID, there's a concept in sociology known as the Matthew effect, uh, which is the name of which is inspired by the Bible, where there's a, a passage saying like, you know, those of you who, who already have a lot, you're going to get more. And those of you who don't have enough, well, it's all going to be taken away. <laughs> and, and I felt like, oh, well, COVID's actually just like that. Because the people who, like, if you have like a family, it's like, oh, you're going to have so much family. It's going to be like shoved down your throat. You can't get away from them. And then the people who live on their own, it's like, yes, and you're never going to talk to another person for like two years. And it's just, okay, everything is polarized. And that's, you know, of course, that's nobody's ideal. You know, even if you're happy having a family, I think pretty much nobody is happy having a family 24 hours a day. You can't escape. And, uh, and that's what a lot of us had. But for me, in my particular case, I was in the latter situation where, you know, I live alone aside from uh, my kittens who, who are great, but you know, not the best conversationalists. And, um, everybody, everybody left New York. I feel like I was like literally the only person who stayed in New York. And then like, slowly people have been coming back and then the new york legislature raised my taxes again i'm like oh thanks thanks for that vote of confidence uh because i stayed and nobody else did i i see you uh so so yeah i was just getting getting slapped around by that but yeah it was a lot of it was a lot of alone time and it was frankly very depressing because i had a situation where you know pre covid i had like the world's most robust social calendar. I'd worked very, very hard to build it, to build up all these networks. I was constantly having dinners and gatherings and shows. I was out six nights a week, sometimes seven nights a week. Like I had to, I had to make a conscious effort to be at home. And then it really very, very suddenly changed. So I would say it was super depressing. And, um, you know, the best strategy for me un under those circumstances is really uh, just one of sublimation. You know, the way, the way that I think about it is like, okay, you know, you got to throw yourself into something. Uh, and you know, uh, in my case, it was, it was work. Uh, I wrote the long game basically all during COVID. Hmm. I wrote a musical during COVID. Um, you know, I was just trying to be productive and like I say, you know, okay, better than crack. So <laughs> that was how I, how I rolled. How, how about you? What, what was your sort of pandemic experience? Well, Kevin? I was going to say the same thing. Like it's, it's, it's an addiction. You know, it's it's what gives you energy. And as soon as, you know, you surround yourself back with people again or uh, you have new relationships in your life, it's it was really difficult to adjust. Finding myself not being able to be present with family members, with new relationships, with, uh, you know, brothers, sisters, friends, you know, whatever it was. So it's been a long, long journey kind of getting out of that. Um, but at the same time, it just goes to show, look, like it's nice that you love what you do, you know, and, and it is, you know, not everyone has that. So it is a gift, kind of like you said, a lot and nothing. I am curious, though, um, when it comes to education for your students, your professor at Duke University, um, you do a lot with email automation. You do a lot with your time. Students don't have family right now. They don't have 
the responsibilities that come along with that. What is what are you teaching them in terms of digital marketing for how to get them set up? Ah, yeah. Well, so I am happy to give advice in general about students. I will say that the one caveat that I have is that sure. I'm an executive education professor. Okay. So typically, I'm actually working with older students that are sort of mid-senior oh, okay. level people Good who are coming back for additional learning rather than, uh, rather than you know, like folks in their early 20s. Good to know. But yeah. But anyway, I, I think certainly these are interesting questions, right? If you know what what should digital marketing look like these days, and how do we think about it? I will start out by continuing to beat a drum that I uh, have beaten for a number of years, but I think is only more important today than it was in the past, which is the primacy of email marketing. Um, I know that there, you know, there's always talk about, you know, well, oh, this generation, you know, first it was millennials don't like email. And now it's, you know, Gen Z doesn't like email. You know what? I don't freaking like email either, but emails like, it's like a, a utility. It's a fact of life. Like I don't like email because there's too much email, but when you enter the workforce, you will get emails. That is how we communicate and TikTok and whatever. This is, you know, largely, I suspect that these things are going to recede into the background, but even if they don't, the whole premise is that if you are focusing your efforts on your brand building, your platform building on somebody else's platform, it puts you at such systemic risk. The minute they change an algorithm, the minute you somehow get disfavored because of you know what whatever situation, maybe your account gets mm, hacked, like or that. you know maybe you say the wrong thing, or who knows what. Uh, you run the risk of having that asset taken away from you. Email is your direct channel to people. Now, I understand if you're trying to reach 13-year-olds, this is not the optimal channel. But if you were trying to reach business people who are, you know, let's say 22 plus, this is one of the best things that you can do uh, because it gives you an opt-in relationship that you can control. I totally agree. I think it's like email is 40% more likely to make a sale than social media still to this day, which is fascinating. What about email automation? When people hear that term, automation, algorithm, a series of steps to solve a solution, a problem, what's your philosophy on email automation and how do you use it to increase sales, but also save you time? Yeah. So email automation, um, you're exactly right. I mean, so, you know, the term for some people sort of conjures up this like, ah, it's like robotic spam or, or something, which, uh, you know, might frighten people into thinking it's terrible. But ultimately, uh, you know, I'm certainly a fan of email automation in the sense that, as with all things, you want to be as efficient as you can, right? So if you if you've taken the time to craft a really good thoughtful, helpful email that you are, you know, sending out once to someone, if subsequent subscribers could actually benefit from that as well, why would you lose that? You know, as long as it's an, is an evergreen that can be continuing to add value, it's actually far more helpful to people if you find a way to automate it. And so in my particular case, I have uh, a number of automated email systems set up. And of course, I send broadcast emails as well for more time sensitive things. But if somebody subscribes to my list, you know, let's say they, they download an opt-in, they, uh, they will typically get um, a seven email onboarding sequence, which plays out over the course of about a month 
where they are being introduced to me. And, you know, kind of like, here's my deal. Here's some things you might like to read. Here's some information. Uh, just sort of stepping into the world and hope, you know, hopefully it's orienting them enough that they're like, oh yeah, this seems good. I'll, I'll keep reading. And then once they go through the onboarding sequence, they then get moved into a newsletter sequence where for just under a year, and I want to continue adding even more, uh, but for just under a year, they get a series of weekly emails with a newsletter with evergreen messages Again, links to articles that I've written or been featured in or something that I think can add value to readers. These are all things that are focused on information and long-term relationship building. And it's automated, uh, but hopefully in a way that is adding to the user experience. How do you think about email automation, Kevin? Yeah, I, I, I'd agree. Same thing. Uh, it, it definitely helps with planning. Uh, so when we have big campaigns, you know, we'll sit down, we'll, we'll write big plans and schedule out these emails. I think it's awesome for tagging too. So you can segment your email list a little bit better. So based on a click on a purchase, we won't send someone the same email to upsell them on something if they've already made that purchase. Right. But I will say, you know, it's, we've definitely hit our bumps in the road. I mean, it's, it's definitely been a very difficult thing to manage with so many contacts and, and you know, the automation not working the way we want it to uh, and, and so forth. But when it comes to um, your revenue models, is it solely courses, ebooks, books, advertising? What are those revenue models, if you want my sharing? Yeah. So uh, I, I do not, especially because, you know, writing my book, Entrepreneurial You, that was largely what I was talking about was, you know, multiple revenue streams and how to, how to be smart about building them. So my primary revenue streams are, um, so I have coaching, executive coaching for individuals. I have organizational consulting, uh, sort of at the enterprise level. Mm. I do online courses. I have uh, sort of one-off workshops that I will do, not really during COVID because they're in person, but uh, but certainly before and probably after. Uh, I have a year-long mastermind that I run. I also um, sometimes do sponsorship deals with companies, and um, I do keynote speaking. Uh, again, this is something that <laughs> diminished pretty much down to zero during COVID, right. although it sort of took took a reshaped form in terms of webinars. Uh, but now both online and in person are are coming back. Uh, so those are those are really the the principal streams and, and books, of course. But if you are commercially publishing a book, it's really you know, it would be very rare for you to be making a lot of money on it. Uh, typically, the book is is the front end, and you make money on the back end. Hmm. And and what about um, setting your price? Right. Like a lot of entrepreneurs are like, gosh, you know, I don't know what to charge. I want to give it away for free. Right. We keep hearing that. I want to give that away for free. You know, it's not. I'll figure it out later. You know, what is your thought process on setting a price, and how do you determine that? Yeah. So I think there's certainly a place for giving things away for free. Certainly, if you are looking to build your email list, then having some kind of a, a useful or interesting opt-in that people can download, um, you want to encourage that behavior. So for instance, for the long game, I created a long game strategic thinking self-assessment and you know, folks can can get that. It's uh, doryclark.com slash the long game. But I wanted to create something that was an interesting and meaningful 
experience, you know, for self-reflection, but that people would would feel good about and be like, oh yeah, okay, I'm glad I'm on this this woman's email list. So I think that that's part of it. Of course, the problem comes when you're giving too much away for free. You don't want to keep doing that because uh, you know it's a sad fact of human psychology that things that are free, people often assume, oh well, this can't be very good, or oh, this can't be very valuable. So uh, we have to contextualize it. One way that I think is really powerful is beginning to make a concerted effort to build relationships with other practitioners in your field. Mm. Um, I certainly have have known and dealt with people sometimes who have the attitude, oh, well, I don't want to meet other consultants or I don't want to meet other, you know, whatever insert mm -hmm. thing that they do. They said, I only want to, you know, mingle with prospects. That's That's who I want to get to know. And I mean, yes, of course, uh, but it, I think it should really be a both and because number one, the other consultants or coaches or whatever you are, they're not your competitors. Right. You know, this is, you're competing against yourself. This is, uh, this is not like somebody's going to steal business from you. But what is really valuable is for you to build up a trusted network of people who you can be honest with about things like pricing, about how to structure offers. Because otherwise, if you don't have that, the buyer is always going to be at the advantage because they're, you know, they put out an RFP, they're going to see 10 proposals. You're only seeing yours. You could be wildly undercharging and not even know it. And so having the context of people you can talk to and ask for advice, um, it makes a, a huge difference. And I have certainly dealt with coaching clients that I've had. You know, I, I coach a lot of coaches and consultants around marketing issues and things like that. And so I've seen there, there's often people who, you know, they're very good at what they do, but they're hesitant to charge more. They're, you know, really worried. They're like, oh gosh, I don't know if this would be inappropriate. I don't know if this would get me disqualified. Once they find out that other people whom they consider to be less good are charging more money, the good news is their hesitation goes completely away. Because even if you've been worried, oh my gosh, I don't know how the client would respond. If you see that that joker down the street is getting more than you, hopefully it gets enough healthy indignation that you say, well, that's ridiculous. I don't want to be a sucker anymore. And you're willing to raise your prices. It's a great word choice right there. Healthy indignation. Now, you sell a lot of business resources. What's been your favorite business resource that's helped you throughout this journey? So define, define resource for me, Kevin. Uh, a collaborative support group, a course online, a book, um, a friend, a mentor. Got it. Well, you know, one thing that was actually really lovely for me during COVID in particular was early on, you know, March, my, you know, March of 2020, I realized that this was going to be a situation that was massively disruptive to my business and to everybody's business. And so I decided to essentially assemble a kind of Avengers type team uh, where we could have a, a kind of an ad hoc impromptu mastermind hmm. where we were talking regularly and we would do uh, Zoom chats, you know, not hugely often, but maybe every couple of months. And uh, we would send Marco Polo messages to each other, you know, these sort of like video, short video snippets. 
um, asking questions or things like that, because everybody's business models were having to change and pivot so rapidly. And so I reached out specifically to friends. Uh, I, I did this in concert with my good friend, Alyssa Cohn, but I reached out specifically to people to join who I knew had expertise in different areas. So there was uh, you know, a guy who was really knowledgeable about the speaking business in particular. There was, you know, another guy that came up in the agency world and knew a lot about digital and tech and, you know, things, things like that. So that you were drawing from a pretty good cross section of, uh, of people and could pool your wisdom. Mm. It makes a lot of sense. And, and does it ever hit you that, you know, a, a lot of your other colleagues, maybe in this group are kind of struggling with similar things? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was that was part of the power of it was we we had enough different knowledge and experience that we could offer different solutions or suggestions to each other and still be helpful. But at its core, the problems that we were facing, which was, you know, basically, okay, uh, you know, we had all these trips planned and sometimes it was for things like a keynote talk that is not happening. Sometimes it's for something that we might be able theoretically to reconfigure like a coaching or consulting engagement or or whatever, but just everything looked different than how we envisioned it. And we needed to understand how to maneuver very rapidly in the absence of um, accepted policy or information. Interesting. And, and when you're looking forward to 2022, is there anything that excites you or anything that you have an interest in? Is it a new book topic? Is it something that you want to do an investigation on? Someone you want to speak to? What are you looking forward to in 2022? Oh, that's, that's a good question. Um, it's certainly not a new book topic <laughs> because I, uh, I, I want to prevent myself from writing a new book. That is, that is job one. Stay away from that, getting the long game. Uh, but above and beyond that, I would say something I'm certainly looking forward to. I knew from the outset that between writing the book and then marketing the book and some other big projects that I was doing. I knew that 2021, frankly, was not going to be an easy year for me. I was going to, going to have to be going really hard. And so I declared a year ago that January and February of 2022, I was going to take uh, what I'm calling a quasi-sabbatical. I am not eliminating all work, but I'm probably eliminating about 90% of work during that time. So I am going to have a relaxed January and February. And I am very much looking forward to that because we were talking earlier about thinking in waves. And uh, that is that is the wave of restoration for me. Uh, so I think that'll be pretty great. And uh, getting to, to work on other things, you know, I write musical theater, which is a, a process that I actually talked about in the long game, uh, sort of you know, uh, creating that and building that on the side. And so getting to focus a little bit more on that, uh, during my quasi sabbatical will be very nice. Good. Yeah. Taking some time off is always important. I think, uh, especially when you're working nonstop, you know, in the same place all the time, as I'm sure you are, but during that sabbatical, um, I'd like you to think about this question. The question is this Dory, if, if I may, the question is, what is your exit plan? Are you planning, you talk about the long game, you know, how long can you continue to do this, do you think? And what do you think your exit plan will be? Well, the, you know, with a proviso, of course, that this could always change and maybe there'll be a better option. I don't know. Uh, but my plan is that for another, you know, let's call it 20 years, give or take, 
Uh, I will be continuing to do this work, uh, which, which I really love, but also I am looking to increase my optionality. So part of my goal, which I've been working, working on since 2016, is I created a 10-year goal in 2016 to write a Broadway musical. So I'm halfway to that goal now. So I want to have a Broadway musical on the stage in the 2026 season. So part of what I'll be doing is perhaps scaling down this work and then continuing to write Broadway hits. Uh, and then in about 20 years, what I would like, and I might retire fully from the business at this point, is to be named a uh, United States ambassador to an excellent country. What, what country would you prefer? You have a country in mind? Well, you know, I'm actually pursuing Italian citizenship, so possibly Italy. Never been. Heard it's uh, the best country in Europe, but never been. That's amazing, Dory. Well, definitely the best food in Europe. <laughs> oh, no, no doubt about that. Um, so you have a 70,000 person email list. Last I checked. Hopefully it's grown since this podcast. We hope. Uh, and people, if you're listening to this, go online to Dory's website. Uh, search Dory Clark on Google. Should find it. Should be the first thing that pops up. Which tells me you're doing something right. You're listening to customers. What are some stories that stuck out to you over these past 15 years of customers reaching out to you, telling you about the impact your course, your book, your newsletter, your speech, your talk has done in their life? Oh, well, thank you, Kevin. I, I feel very lucky about this because it really, it really is a privilege to get to be helpful to people. I mean, in fact, I might actually, let's, let's see if I can find this here. Uh, I can I can literally read you one that I got today Please, yeah. uh, that, that came in, which was uh, which was kind of fantastic. And the uh, the one that came in, if I can see this. Um, hmm. Yeah, take, oh, I, I think I saved it in a different place. But anyway, this was uh, this was a message that I that I got that I thought was uh, was pretty, pretty cool. Um, it was basically related to a LinkedIn learning course that, um, that I have taught and, uh, it's about listening skills and it was this woman writing it. It was just so heartwarming. She was saying that she liked the course, uh, you know, which is, which is great, but she said, you know, it's this course about, about listening skills. She said that she had watched it after this kind of altercation today with a coworker and she realized through watching uh, the course that there were some things that she could have done differently and would do differently in the future to de-escalate mm -hmm. it. And she said that also uh, it gave her tips about how to stop interrupting people. And she was really excited about it because she said that she wants to apply it at home with her husband and her kids because she wants to make them feel heard. Mm -hmm. And so she, you know, it was empowering for her to have tools about how to be able to do that better. And I thought that was really lovely. You know, it's a, it's a small thing. I mean, you know, these courses for LinkedIn learning, it's, you know, it's like a half an hour course. It's something that people can do over their lunch break, but if it can provide them with tools that they can, that they can use, even if it makes like a 1% difference or a 3% difference in how well they feel that their family or their coworkers uh, you know, how much they feel that that person is listening to them, something like that it, over time compounded can actually make a pretty enormous difference. Absolutely. I think listening is a great trail of leadership. And obviously, you know, us podcasters, we have to have uh, active listening going on at all times and, and make sure that we don't cut people off 
uh, when, when the other is speaking. What do you think gets in the way of people being able to active listen? So I think there's often a few things that are happening. One is when people are, are just nervous for some reason, you know, if it's a high stakes situation, they often are not able to listen because they are physiologically feeling so much with the nerves that it's almost like they, they can't, they can't concentrate on what the other person's actually saying because they're freaking out about what they might be saying or about what, what they need to respond, you know? And so it, it makes it hard to be present in the moment. If you are physiologically distracted because of nerves, it's a part of it. Um, sometimes if you are in a fight, for instance, or, or a charge situation, uh, you might be feeling very defensive. And so in that case, you're listening to like the first sentence and the minute you hear it as a criticism, you're just like, yeah, but blah, 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 and you're wanting to contest it. And so you're not necessarily listening at that point because you have gone into defense attorney mode. Um, so there's that. Sometimes you might not be listening because actually for what I would consider quote unquote, a good reason, which is you're so engaged, you're so excited. It's like, you know, Kevin starts saying, oh, well, maybe we could do blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my God, yeah, Kevin. And then we could do this and then we could do this and blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, wait, but I had other ideas, you know, but, but you're, you're just sort of going like a, a bulldozer. So, I mean, those are, those are just three of the variations, but in the end, they do all kind of end up at the same place, which is, oh gosh, the other person feels a little bit unheard and a little bit invalidated. It, it makes sense. And I'm a huge like culprit of that. Like, I'm gonna be honest. Like, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a pretty good active listener, but like, it really depends on like, I feel like my mood in those meetings sometimes. I'm so involved in the business and working tirelessly. You know, like I can, I can, I understand your, your work ethic, your days, door that you put in. Um, and when it comes to meetings, you know, I, I feel like I really have to take some deep breaths before my meetings. Is there anything that you do specifically as an exercise, as a meditation? Is it reminding yourself to be present in the meeting? What do you, what works for you? Yeah, it's, it, it can be a challenge when things are super back to back. Um, I think at, at a minimum, I try to plot things out so that I don't end up in a bad situation. And what I mean by that is obviously the ideal is that you have a manageable enough calendar so that you have plenty of time for sleep and rest and, uh, and eating and all this kind of stuff. The truth is sometimes you don't. And if you don't, um, I find that if I can be smart enough when I know it's a really busy day, like at 10 o'clock in the morning to go to an app, to place an order so that I have lunch ready for pickup at precisely 1230. That gives me enough time to, okay, leave my desk at 1230, pick it up by 1235. It's ready. I eat it and I'm able to be back and in front of the desk again by one o'clock for the next call. Otherwise, if I don't start thinking about the meal until 1230, it's not going to be ready. I'm not going to get any food. And by the time it's like four o'clock in the afternoon, I'm going to be miserable. So having some degree of prior planning uh, enables me to, you know, sort of function at a baseline. The other thing too, when you're in the mode of like, it's crazy, which should not always be the mode, but you know, sometimes it is, is at least here in New York, there are uh, late night, like Chinese massage places. Uh, Ooh. and that is actually really helpful. Uh, you don't have to make an appointment. 
I know not every city has this, but but some do. And so I'll finish up calls. It'll be 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. I mean, I'm not going to be doing productive work then. So if I am feeling really wrecked, I will go and get a massage at nine o'clock at night before, you know, before bed. And that is actually very helpful in terms of relaxation and keeping my body in, you know, reasonable performance so that I don't start getting wrecked with pain. Makes sense. A little Chinese massage never hurt anybody, right? That's right, man. Dory, it's been a pleasure speaking to you today. I learned so much. Thank you so much for coming on this show. But let's bring this home now. What is your definition of a real leader? Kevin, thank you so much. I would say a real leader to me is someone who is thoughtful about developing others, um, who actually puts some time into thinking, where could this person go and how can we provide them with opportunities and tools to get there? For Dory Clark, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there and be thoughtful in developing others. And always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Dory. All right. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Dory Clark. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Dory, real quick, where can people find more information about your good work? Kevin, thanks so much. Uh, folks who want to learn more, they can obviously pick up a copy of The Long Game if they'd like, but I would certainly like to invite everyone to get the free resource, uh, The Long Game Self-Assessment. It helps you apply the principles of strategic thinking to your own life and career, and you can get it at doryclark.com slash the long game. Appreciate it, Dory. And then it looks like we didn't have any questions flying today. So if you do have any questions, now would be the time uh, while we're waiting here, give the people a couple minutes and, you know, don't be shy. Good people. Um, tell me about the podcast. I'm a podcaster. You're a podcaster. What's been your experience like? Oh, well, thank you. I, you know, I guess my caveat, I don't have a, a podcast per se, oh, but it's close to a podcast. It is a LinkedIn, uh, live stream that I do every mm. week for Newsweek. And uh, I've been doing it for about 14 months now, which has been a fantastic experience. Um, the show is called Better. And so I interview folks, you know, uh, mainly authors, but all kinds of uh, interesting folks and uh, really focus in on the question of what we can be doing to ensure that our lives are uh, at the end of this 30 minute interview, hopefully a little bit better than before because we're sharing good tips. Awesome. And then D, D. Grano asks Dory, um, speaking of better, she says, why Italy besides the food? Well, D, a, uh, a, a plot that I'm hatching uh, that I've been working on for a long time is that I actually technically qualified for Italian citizenship through my great grandfather. And so I am in the process of pursuing that and applying for Italian citizenship. So uh, this is a super long process, which has been made even longer by COVID, but uh, I have been assiduously moving forward and gathering the necessary paperwork and all of that. So uh, God willing, it will move forward and eventually I will get Italian citizenship, in which case uh, that would be very cool to get to be uh, the ambassador to a country where I, where I had dual citizenship. Dory, thank you so much for coming on this show today. It's been a pleasure getting to know you a little bit better today. I know you're a busy person. Uh, folks, you can catch Dory's interview if you had to go early on the Real Leaders podcast. I'll be on iTunes, Spotify, all those good places. What to help us out and Dory out is if you go to that show and leave a review. It helps Dory Clark and others on the show get recognized and show up on those good search results. Um, so, Dory, appreciate your time. And for everyone out there, always keep it real. Take care. 
get another Chinese massage for me tonight. <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of The Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real